each of you are here. And uh, man, my name is Justin. I'm one of the elders here at Peninsula Grace. And we've been walking together through the book of Exodus. Uh, and so we're going to continue uh, that today, looking at chapters 25 through 31. We've been encouraging people to be in the Word, uh, th- their own copy in front of them. So you, you want to open your Bibles, we'll be in this, we're going to bounce around in this text a little bit, but we're going to start actually in Exodus chapter 29, be the first place uh, we look when we get there. But I wanted to take a poll first. I wanted to know how many of you uh, would consider yourselves a homebody. How many of you consider yourselves, you would rather, you want to stay at home, uh, you, you like to nest, okay, or roost, or whichever one you, you might be, but um, you want every every twig in place, right? And, and you, you prefer control in your life, stability, predictability. That's you. Now, how about the other side of it? How many of you would rather be on the road? How many would like to, traveling, new places, new faces, new experiences, new tastes, new smells? Some of you, you're drooling when I say that. Some of you are twitching, right? All, all different strokes for different folks here. Uh, I am, my, my wife is a nester. She would definitely rather stay at home and nest. I love to travel. I, I live by the words of the two great aquatic uh, philosophers. Uh, one of them said, see the line where the sky meets the sea. It calls me. Yes, it does. And then more, if you're a little bit older, I want to be where the people are. <laughs> I want to see them. I don't know if they could be dancing if we're in church, if that's allowed. But uh, man, we, so in a vacuum, I would be totally cool living as a hobo. In fact, I would live in a vacuum. That'd be fine. Uh, my wife would just prefer to vacuum. So very different people. I don't see any marital problems down the road for us at all. Um, but either way, I think whichever, whichever end you, you fall on, we're all looking for a place. We're all looking for a place to dwell where, where we can find whatever it is that, that we are looking for. The problem is the nester nor the wanderlust seems to be able to find it. Um, some of us are bored of staying put. Some of us are fear, fear being uprooted. But for both of us, we find restlessness, discontent, disappointment. But that's because I think in part, our rest is ultimately not going to be found in a place But as we'll see in the text this morning, our rest is found in a person. And we're going to get a glimpse of that. As we study Exodus uh, here in chapter 25 through 31, we're going to see the details of the the tabernacle and the instructions that God gives Israel. So kind of think Chip and Joanna Gaines, but thousands and thousands of years ago. Uh, I know that's why you showed up today. This is like most of your favorite parts of the Bible, right? You all have your life verse from this section embroidered on some pillow in your house. Uh, Ten cubits shall be the length of thy frame. And you're just like, yes, it shall. I just love that. Um, last, but like last week, we saw in the case laws, man, these, the, these instructions, although they can feel tedious and, and boring, right? What even is a cubit, right? And, and, we all, and, and that's okay. Like not every part of scripture is just going to make us openly weep when we read it. But I do believe that just like we saw in the case laws, there is beauty of our God to behold here. And so I'm just praying that we have the eyes to see who our God is in this text. God is instructing his people of Israel how to be constructing his dwelling place. And the blueprints here, in the blueprints, he, he reveals the purpose of his instruction. So look at Exodus 29, uh, starting at verse 43. This is the, God speaking here. He says, I will also meet with the Israelites there. And that place will be consecrated or set apart by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. And I, here it is, will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. And they will know that I am the Lord. We've heard that over and over again in Exodus. 
who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that is so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. We, we see God's heart here. Here's the purpose of the Exodus. The reason he's rescued these people out of slavery and out of bondage is to dwell with them as their God and them as his people. And really, we've been looking for this ever since the exile moment in the Garden of Eden. How will a holy God once again dwell with sinful people? How can our sin be dealt with so that our God can be dwelt with once again? I want to credit Bobby Jameson with some of the outline and thoughts from here today and credit where credit's due. Two things I see in, these, in this section. Number one, God provides a place to meet with us. He provides a place to meet with us. The words of David from Psalm 27, we read it earlier. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire. So we want to key in here because David says, here's the one thing in my life that I want. This is the one thing that my whole life is, I've been seeking. And he says this, to dwell in the house of the Lord. All the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in the temple. David says, the only thing in my life that I want is to be in God's house. Why? Because that's where God is. To see his beauty. To see him for who he is. You know, it's interesting, in the 40 chapters of Exodus, 13 of these chapters are devoted to these tabernacle instruction details. So that should clue us in that this is a really important thing to God. And these might feel like painstaking details as we skim through them, right? Uh, but the very detailed nature of them should point us to some realities. And the first one I see here is that how God told them to make this thing points them to the, de- the, the beauty of his holiness. God says, there is only one way, and he's super specific on how to build this thing and then how to enter into this thing, which points to the beauty of his otherness, his holiness. But then, I think it's really important that we see here that he told them, that he gave them these instructions, reveals the beauty of his grace, He didn't leave it up for them to hunt down God. That God showed his people who he wanted to dwell with. This is the way to me. This is the way to know me and to dwell with me. And so we see the beauty of God's holiness and his grace here in the text. So think of this, these, these chapters as a kind of a divine open house. As we look at the tabernacle, what we want to see in the details here is the beauty of our God and what he's trying to tell us about himself. He longs to meet with us. So the tabernacle itself was a tent. They're traveling through the wilderness, and so this needed to be portable. And it was, it was roughly 45 feet by 15 feet, and then it was surrounded by this larger courtyard that was about 150 feet by 75 feet. And when you first would enter into the courtyard, the first thing you would see is this bronze altar. And on this altar, there were sacrifices being continually given here. Um, If you look at chapter 29, uh, scoot back up to verse 38. It says this, uh, this is what you are to offer regularly on the altar every day to your old lambs. In the morning, you're to offer one lamb and at twilight, offer the other lamb. So what, what we see here is a conti- what would happen when you are offering a sacrifice? You would see the fire from the sacrifice on the altar, and then what would come out of the fire would be smoke. And what have we seen over and over again as the symbol of God's presence in Exodus? We've seen fire and smoke. And so here, once again, just like at the burning bush and on the top of Mount Sinai, God's saying, this is my presence symbolically. 
And then it's cool to watch that God actually has them all situate in this giant circle as they pitch their tents each time they move. And the focal point, everybody is circled around and tents are pointed toward, they would see this. And what did he say? This is, you're going to sacrifice this first thing in the morning and the last thing at night. So when they first get out of bed in the morning and the last thing they see before they hit their pillow at night is going to be the presence of God in the midst of them. And that we're also going to see that at, in, in this thing, he is showing them, I accept you. The reason you can dwell with me is because of the sacrifices being made on the altar that I am providing. The next thing they would have encountered was this wash basin, or some of your translations might say a laver. So the people of Israel were not allowed past this point and into the tabernacle unless they were one of the priests. And even then, it was with a stipulation. You skip down to Exodus 30, uh, chapter, uh, verse 20, and we'll see the stipulation. He says, whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister by burning a food offering to the Lord, talking about the priests, they must wash with water. And and this is a super important cause and effect here. So that they will not die. They don't, he says, if you don't wash in this wash basin and you enter in unclean, you will die. You can see how seriously he's taken this thing. So we've thought about taking this approach with our 13-month-old Lucy. Like, if you don't bathe, sweetheart... (laughs) You know, we, I, I don't, we're new to the game. You can teach us. We can, we're moldable. Um, but this is how holy God is, right? What we see is how seriously he takes worship here. Like if you are not made clean, you actually cannot enter my presence without dying. But then we go inside and, and we see this, uh, this lovely little room here. And look at my fancy little graphics. That's next level. Uh, so yeah, I know. Uh, so the lampstand here uh, was, it was built to look like uh, the tree of life in the, it looks like a tree in bloom. And it's to remind us of the tree of life in Eden. We said this, this whole thing is about how do we get back into a dwelling with God again, just like Adam and Eve had pre-sin in the garden. And so you're going to see all this Eden imagery in the tabernacle details. And one of these is this light and life that the tr- this tree would be continually uh, shining in this holy place. And then uh, next to it was the table of bread, or showbread, your translation might say. And this symbolized uh, the provision that God gave to them as they're traveling through, just like with manna. But there were 12 loaves. And what does that point us to? The 12 tribes of Israel. And what's interesting, the way that this was located is the lamp actually was shining light onto these 12 loaves of fresh bread, showing what do they pray over and over again as a people. May your face shine upon us. Symbolized right here with the bread and the lamp. And then we saw this altar of incense. And this was used for prayer. The priests would come in and they would sacrifice. And the, as the smoke rose, it was the priests were praying on behalf of the nation, prayers rising symbolically to their God. And that, that, the altar of incense was right before this veil, this veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And if you look back at, 20, at uh, chapter 26, verse 31, tells us an important detail here. It says, you are to make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely spun linen with a design of cherubim worked into it. So these cherubim that you can see on the curtain were these angels. And we over and over again in scripture, seeing the cherubim in particular, are angels uh, there to guard the holiness of God. And again, you go back to the garden and what do we see when Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden? What's there protecting the entrance back into the holy place of God? But cherubim, just like here, to guard his holiness. And then when you did go through the next room, if, if you were one that was allowed to, you entered into the most holy place or the holy of holies. 
And here there was not nearly as, as much going on. We see the Ark of the Covenant in chapter 25. So if you zoom back to Exodus 25 as we bounce around, verse 14, it says, insert the poles into the rings on the side of the ark in order to carry the ark with them. So as you can see here on the screen, we have poles that they would use to transport the ark. And the reason for that is God said, if you touch the ark itself, the place where my presence or my symbolic throne is, you will fall down dead. And we see that in a story with David uh, years later. So we see the Ark of the Covenant, and that contained, among a few other things, the Word of God, the stone tablets that God had given Moses. And then on the top, there was this gold plate, and they called it the mercy seat. And, all, and above this mercy seat were some cherubim. If, if you look at down to chapter 25, verse 17, it says, Make a mercy seat of gold, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide. And then make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered wood at the two ends of the mercy seat. And then these wings would arch over together over the mercy seat. So once again, God's holy uh, protection and ninjas of, of angels were, were there spreading their wings out over this place. Now, notice here then in verse 22, it says, I will meet with... With you there above the mercy seat, so that gold plate between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, and I will speak with you from there about all that I command you regarding uh, the Israelites. So here, this is it. Like this is the in the God's holy place of the tabernacle, in the holy room, the holy of holies. This is His throne room. Now, notice here what is between the lid and the angels. There's nothing, right? It's a space. God is spirit. And says, you can't see me directly. And that's one of the reasons and one of the commands. He said, don't make a graven image of me. But in this place, in this literal space, said, this, is the, my symbol, this is where my Shekinah glory will reside and where I'll speak to you. But to access this space, it could only be done by the high priest and once a year when they would sprinkle blood onto the mercy seat where the high priest would make atonement for the sins of the people for the whole year. And that is a process. So how, but what about for us in this room today? Like, how, how can we find a permanent approach to the beauty and holiness of God? How is this pointing to the better meeting place that you and I so desperately needed? We see in John chapter 1, as the story opens up, what does it say? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word in the Greek, dwelt among us, it was the word for tabernacle. So literally, the word of God, Jesus Christ, became flesh and he tabernacled among us. God is showing himself in a tabernacle again, but this time it's not a physical building, it's in a physical person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see in Christ here the true and better tabernacle. And it's amazing to look at the New Testament and see all the ways that everything we are looking at, all the details here pointed to and found their fulfillment in the person of Jesus. You see at the altar of, of, of burnt offering here, the bronze altar, Jesus, Hebrews 9 says, is that sacrifice on the altar. And he also is, John 1, the presence of God himself that we behold in the flesh. And then you go to the wash, wash basin or, or labor. That's where we are cleansed. It's in the blood of Jesus, that we are cleansed from our sins, washed, Ephesians 5 says, by the washing of his word, the water of his word. And then what did Jesus claim? As you move into the holy place in the golden lampstand, Jesus said in John 8, I am the light of the world. You're going to see God and see reality through this lampstand. And then we move over to the table of showbread. And Jesus, once again, in John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. I'm your provision that you will feast upon. 
And then if we move to the altar of incense, Jesus, our high priest, John 17, before he dies, he prays on the behalf of the people that he's about to die for. And right now, he too is praying for us. And then we see that veil itself. What happened the moment Jesus died? It says the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in to his flesh, as we'll read later, divided so that we might enter into the holy of holies with God himself. And then when you get into the holy of holies, the presence of God is seen again in Jesus. The mercy seat, the place where God's holiness and grace meet is through Christ and Christ alone. Jesus has opened the heavens to give us access to the throne room of God. And Corinthians says, now in him we can behold the glory of God and not fall down dead with unveiled faces. Intimate access granted to us because of the atonement that Christ's blood made for us. So this, this whole point of the tabernacle here was to be able to glimpse the beauty of God. But where do we view his, his beauty today most, most uh, directly? We no longer have to travel over to, to the Middle East and go up Mount Sinai and see him at the top of a mountain. We no longer have to travel to Jerusalem and go to the temple and see his glory there. What the crazy thing that what, where, where the New Testament, where Paul says the temple of God is now, he actually says we are that temple. That now God resides in us, both individually as believers and corporately as the body of Christ. And you go, man, what does that look like? Well, we said last week, the, the law of God reveals his character. And so our job now is to carry that out as we are these little mini portable tabernacles. And the mission is to go into the world and show, show the nations the beauty of our God. How do we do that? How is his glory revealed to the world? And I love how 1 John explains that. He says, no one has ever seen God. Remember, that's a space. God is spirit. We can't see him. But here's what he says. If we love one another... When we do the tiny little acts of love to a neighbor, to our family, he says, if we love one another, God remains, that's that same word, dwells, tabernacles in us, and his love is made complete or evidenced or is seen in us. How do we show a watching world who our God is, who is love? It's through the way that his people, his tabernacle, walking tabernacles, love like he loves but how do we, well, we're sinners, we're sinners, right? Like, how do we gain access into this dwelling place? How can we be the holy meeting place of God if, if we're sinful? And this points us to the second thing he provides in these details is a priest, a priest who represents us. So bearing down into chapters 28 and 29, we see these priests and they're, they're first we look at their garments and then we'll look at the consecration process. Uh, the priest's garments first in Exodus 28. I want to zero in on even more specifically the ephod. I'm sure you all have one of those in your closet. Uh, so in the ephod here, uh, look, at, look at what he explains. So chapter 28 and looking at verse 29 talking about this thing. It says, when he enters the sanctuary, Aaron, so Aaron was the high priest at the time, he is to carry the names of Israel, or maybe your translation says, bear the names of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece. So as Aaron was the only one allowed into the Holy of Holies, but it says here that he bears the names of the people. And they literally, on this little, this lovely little ensemble here you see, that you see a breast piece tied together by these shoulder pads, right? They had those back then too. Um, and on these, you had these stones. And on the stones were, were graven the names of the tribes of Israel. 
And here it says that Aaron would bear the names. He came in alone, but he was representing the whole nation. It says he bore the guilt of all of the people. And you can see already how that would shadow toward what Christ did on our behalf. And then there are these funky little bells. You ready for this? So uh, back up to verse 33. And this, this is interesting. Uh, here's some, somebody had way too much time on their hands and was recreating this. Um, so thank you for that person. Verse 33, make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. So pomegranates. Remember we said again, this is echoing Eden and the, the fruit and the trees that we would have seen in the garden. So make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn on its lower hem and all around it. Put gold bells between them all the way around so the gold bells and pomegranates alternate around the lower hem of the robe. So you have these pomegranates and you have these bells. And then it says a little bit of why. Verse 35, the robe will be worn by Aaron whenever he ministers, he serves, and, it will sound, and its sound will be heard when he enters the sanctuary before the Lord and when he exits so that he does not die. So all the people are listening, and as Aaron goes into the sanctuary, they're listening. And if the ring a stops ringing, they know that he has fallen down dead and did not go through the proper consecration process, and he would die. Now, there was a, there's a wives' tale that there was a rope connected to his ankle so they could pull him back out. We've never been able to verify that. But in theory, if he falls down dead in there, nose goes, who's going in to get him, right? <laughs> You're going to be stacking him up. Like, how would you get him out? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. You got to be careful, right? And so we see here, though, these, these bells showing us the seriousness that God takes this. And then I love this detail in verse 41. It says that God clothed them. God clothed the priests. And this, this word here is the same exact word that we see back in the garden. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned and they tried to put fig leaves on themselves to cover up their own sin? And God said, uh-uh. I alone can provide a covering for you. And so he kills an innocent animal. The shed blood. And he takes the animal skins and he covers them. He says, only I can cover your sins. And here, once again, he says, the priests can't provide holy garments. They can't make themselves acceptable in my sight. I will clothe you. And that's when we sing that beautiful, it's the reality of Christ. And we say, dressed in his righteousness alone, can we be faultless to stand before the throne. My, all my good works, he says, are filthy, unacceptable rags can only be dressed in an alien righteousness, as Martin Luther called it, the righteousness of Jesus on my behalf. So we see here uh, entering in the clothing that the priests have, but then there was this whole process of how they would become consecrated. That word consecrated is just a fancy Bible word that means to set apart for a specific use. Holy meant as opposed to just common every day. There's a specific task that he's giving uh, the people here to serve. So the Levites were the tribe that were to serve on behalf of the other 11 tribes. Now, to, in order to bear the sins that he says Aaron is bearing, you yourself had to be pure. Well, we know that Aaron and the Levites are no less sinful than the rest of the people. So there had to be this consecration process in order to do that. So we look at this process that they would go through. Uh, anybody here seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre? This is a test. This is, okay, all right. So, I mean, you know, I hate those. Ugh, like, it's, there's a lot of things going on there. I would never watch that. But, but there is this, when we think about the process, we can, we can kind of gloss over some of this. But man, I'm telling you, this was a, a bloody, messy 
pretty gross process that God had them go through. So I just want us to sit on this and, and think about what this would have, think about being some of these priests and going through this. So starting at verse 15, take one ram and Aaron and his sons are to lay their hands on the ram's head. You're to slaughter the ram, take its blood and splatter it on all sides of the altar. Cut the ram into pieces, wash its entrails and legs. Uh, did anybody re- eat, recently eat this morning? Uh, and, and, and place them with its head and its pieces on the altar. Then burn the whole ram on the altar as a burnt offering to the Lord. It's a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. You're to take the second ram, and Aaron and his sons must lay their hands on the ram's head. Slaughter the ram, take some of its blood, and put it on Aaron's right earlobe, okay, on his son's right earlobes, on the thumbs of their right hands, on the big toes of their right feet. Splatter the remaining blood on all sides of the altar. Take some of the blood that is on the, uh, on the altar and some of the anointing oil. Sprinkle them on Aaron and his garments, as well as on his sons and their garments. So he and his garments will be made holy as well as his sons and their garments. This is literally a bloody mess. And, and you see the irony here of like by blood being spread everywhere, cleansing is symbolically being made. Through the death and a sacrifice, blood is shed to cleanse these priests so that they could serve as God's chosen instruments. But again, all of these are pointing us to the reality of Jesus, our true and better priest. When he came, when he tabernacled among us, he came to the son, he says the son of man came to serve, not be served. And he's serving us as the better high priest, but Jesus didn't need to go through this consecration process, right? Because as God himself, he already was pure, he was perfect. But have you ever asked yourself like what is Jesus doing right now? Like we, we talk a lot about what he did for us on the cross and the empty tomb and he's coming back one day. Like what is like, and it's crazy to think, I mean, the Bible teaches Jesus rose to a physical body. So somewhere, I don't know how that works geographically, but Jesus is in a body. And what is he doing right now? Well, the Bible tells us, the Bible tells us that after he resurrected, he ascended into heaven through the torn veil. He makes a way and Jesus enters in to the actual, the real holy of holies into the very presence of God. And I love uh, that Pastor Ross has had us reading in our, in our daily reading plan, uh, going through Hebrews. It's such a good parallel. If you don't uh, have access to that um, reading plan, jump online, go to our homepage. It's, it's a really helpful resource. But in, in Hebrews chapter 9, it says, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands. That was only a model of the true one but into heaven itself so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. So this earthly tent that we're talking about here was just a shadow and that Jesus is going into the actual presence of God himself. And just like that priest ephod that bore the names of Israel, Jesus comes into his father's presence today, bearing the names not just of the people of Israel, but bearing the sins of all nations for all time. That's why we sing the song, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, there is no tongue that can bid me to depart. What a savior. What a savior. So I, I often hear people, if I could, so I often hear people looking for hope in their own performance People saying things like, man, I just, I hope that I, I'm, I'm doing the right thing, that I am, I'm, I'm doing enough good stuff to be able to, when I see him, that he'll approve of me. And I, this, that is a faulty place to put our hope. Hebrews 10, it says there is only one place for that hope. 
He says, every priest, this was back in the old system, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time after time, which can never take away sins. That was only a symbol. The blood of bulls and goats has no power to actually forgive me and place me in my Father's presence. But he says, but this man, Jesus Christ, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. You know why he sat down? Because it was finished. Because there was nothing. He didn't have to go year after year. He didn't have to jump back up on that cross every single year. One sacrifice for all time. For by one offering, he says, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified, set apart in Christ. He says, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. You know what the Bible says? You know when Jesus is going to remember my sin again? Never He says, now where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer an offering of sin. Jesus does not, like those priests, have to continually day and night and year after year offer himself one sacrifice for all time. It is finished. Praise the Lord. Listen, there is no other place to look for protection from the wrath of God. But not just on the negative side. There's no other place to look for intimate access to dwell with him as our God and we as his people. We think about the implications of what we have here in Christ. Israel could only come into the presence of God once a year. And it had to be in one building. And only one person could come in. And only after reenacting Texas Chainsaw Massacre on a bunch of animals. And even then, only for a few fleeting moments, with bells around the hem of their road in fear of, I might fall down dead. Right now, like in Christ, we have 24-hour-a-day access to who we can now call Daddy. Seven days a week. 365 days a year, 366 on a leap year, God acknowledges that. We are the temple. Like this is now the cleansed, through his blood, holy meeting place between God and man. I mean, that's, like I can now approach a holy God solely by his grace that he dressed me so that he could then enter in me. Like that is crazy to wrap our minds around that the holy God would dwell in me now but do we accept this all-access pass into the throne room of God? Do I find rest in the only place where it's available, or is my heart still wandering? And here Jesus, our high priest, he says, man, come to me. Come to me. All, not some, all who are heavy laden and burdened for the restless. And what does he say he promises us? I will give you rest. Take my hand, take the hand of your priest, and we will walk together hand in hand through that veil past those holy protection ninjas. And it's cool because I have already paid the entrance fee. You are covered in my blood. And we together can enter into the Father's throne room forever and gaze on the holy grace and beauty of our God. So let me ask you, do you come into this room this morning feeling restless? And where have you been looking for rest? And I just want to gently ask you, like, how has that been working for you? 
And and those other places that you've been seeking it, have you actually found relief from your anxiety? Have you actually found something that gives you lasting satisfaction? For those of us who who are restless in the the realm of wandering, the reality is we're not going to find it in the next vacation, in the next trip. We're not going to find it uh, in more money. We're not going to find it in in better sex. We're not going to find it with more sunshine. We're not going to find it in a better career. And those of us who are firmly planted at home, we're not going to find it by building a a fabricated nest of stability for ourselves. It's not going to be in thinking that I can actually protect my family. It's not going to be found, I can just hold on to traditions and values. It's not going to be in finding that safer car. I finally found the right retirement fund. I've got my kid in the better college and I've had some sufficient doctor's checkup so that we know it's all good. We'll continue to wander. Now, as we, as we, those things are not bad in of themselves. In fact, it can show us that our restlessness, if it's used to point us in the right direction, can be used for good. C.S. Lewis, he said, these things are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. Those gods will not satisfy us. They cannot be our sovereign for they are not the thing itself, he says. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have never yet visited. See, the restlessness that you and I feel is actually evidence that we're created for a better place. But it's not just a geographic place. It's the place of a person in relationship with him. Augustine famously said, you have made us for yourself. We were designed for God. And he says, therefore, our hearts are restless, will continue to be restless until we find that one place where we'll find rest, that one place. And that's in the person of God himself. You know, this, this tabernacle that they had, they built here was, was designed to be temporary. God knew it. It was a tent. So the whole idea is that you can fold it up and take it to the next place in the wilderness. But it pointed them for, toward the permanent settling that he had for them. But there was a day coming when they would cross the Jordan and they would enter into the land and they would build a tabernacle that was supposed to last forever and to dwell with their God in that land forever if they kept the covenant. But we know that they didn't. And so even that was just a shadow that was pointing forward to the better reality. We can only find, the only place that God can meet us permanently is in Christ. And the only person that can bring us into that place is Christ himself. And like Israel, you and I, like we can, so even if we're in Christ today, we can know that rest in him today by faith. But even just like Israel, they, they had their God, but they were still looking for the permanent dwelling with their God. And brothers and sisters, we still today are pilgrims and sojourners looking forward to that permanent rest in relationship with God. It's the new creation is coming. And this is what the last pages of our Bibles point us to, this permanent settlement. John saw this incredible vision. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, What used to only be by faith is now by sight. He says, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. 
There's this new, better temple coming. So what's that temple going to look like? If it was so beautiful in the Old Testament, what's it going to look like when it comes? Check this out. I did not see a temple in this new city. Why? Because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And then the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. Why? Because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the land. So he says, in this new creation, there's not one building where you have to go to meet with God because God's presence is going to be here on the earth. And so all, everywhere you go, we're going to be in the presence of God. And he says, you won't even, not only will we not need one of those lampstands burning forever and ever, we don't need the sun anymore because Jesus Christ himself, the son of God, is there. And through him, we have light and life forever and ever. Hallelujah. And John later says, this hope, this hope that this is how the story ends. And he says, this hope purifies us. It sets us apart. It sets us apart from all the restless wandering that our world experiences. So tomorrow, when you're on your way to work and someone cuts you off, that dog, when you get that phone call, devastating phone call that changes life forever, when you fall back into that same sin again, Jesus says, I'm right here, and there is rest available. Today, it's by faith, but one day, it will be by sight. Father God, we thank you. You love us. You created us for relationship with you. But even like when Adam and Eve, we turned tail and ran out of that garden trying to do things on our own, you provided a covering available for us. And Father, if there's anybody in this room this morning that's still trying to tape fig leaves over their sin, that today would be the day that they would recognize there's nothing we can do to protect ourselves from a holy God or to grant us access into the presence of that holy God. Like Jesus said, I am the way. And the one that tabernacled among us now today offers us, grants us, gifts us, graces us with access into your presence today. It's only at the cross where your love ran red so that we could be cleansed white, that we find rest for our hearts. Each of us are in different places, but we have the same problem and the same solution. Would you turn our restless hearts toward a rest in Christ by faith today and by sight to come. It's in the name of our high priest, Jesus Christ, our Lord, that all God's people said.